Good evening, everyone. We are looking to close off our series today in James. We open today's passage looking at James chapter 5, verse 7. When I was given this passage, I had mixed feelings. To any who have read ahead have probably noticed some tricky topics. But also, this is the conclusion. And, well, when you write a conclusion, you think of something memorable, a recap going over what was talked before. A nice summary to leave you with no doubt to what the main points are. And James does the same here. While we read in James 5 till the very end, you will hear the continuation of points made earlier in his letter. And we start off where James has just finished warning the rich about the dangers of wealth into this section titled Patience in Suffering. May God bless us with wisdom as we explore this passage together. James 5, verse 7. So, be patient then, my brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crops, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stern firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. It's always a privilege to be up here and to be able to open God's word. I hope you have been able to listen to the previous services and echoing John's thoughts, so many of the subjects you hear tonight will be brought to a natural conclusion in the overall context of James. So you might be wondering, why steadfast in the wilderness? Well, to take it to the beginning, the dispersed early believers to whom this letter was addressed were scattered in various waves throughout biblical history. This very diverse audience all, all had their own challenges, and chief among them were being separated from their homeland, their promised land. They found themselves in the wilderness, 
echoing their struggles in Exodus centuries ago. This wilderness varied greatly with the trials that they faced, which James urges to, re to remain steadfast throughout. And we will be breaking down this passage into those trials. I'll be looking at verses 7 to 20, focusing on three different aspects of how James highlights we should be making our way through the wilderness. We will be beginning with waiting patiently and expectantly for the harvest from verses 7 to 11, then maintaining our integrity and truth in verse 12, and finally strengthening and using our faith in verses 13 to 20. So beginning the section on James, the writer continues from the previous section. You may recall this morning, Tim was speaking about riches and being double-faced. Well, here we look at, well, the lack thereof riches, as where there are people exploiting others with temporary wealth, there will be others to whom this exploitation has driven to desperation. And these are the people whom James is turning to address now. This idea of working and being able to provide for your loved ones has been a cornerstone of society. Maybe you're young, maybe you don't fancy working, but trust me, there's a day when you will be looking forward to that. But being in a season of waiting for that harvest is the painful opposite of that. We do not like being reminded that we're not in control, that we have to depend on others. And here James is addressing those who are humbled, that they are reminded to be patient for that season, where once again we can enjoy that harvest that is coming. But James's patience in this passage should not be mistaken for that fuzzy, out of sight, out of mind patience. This is oftentimes the patience that we're familiar with, the patience where we kind of hide the real issues that are relevant behind layers and layers of distraction. Maybe just that one more episode on Netflix. That assignment can't wait. You don't need to explain to your parents that you failed that exam. But that is not what James is exploring here. The patience he explores is that of expectancy, that we keep our hearts and our eyes focused on that great provider, even during the worst of times. While waiting for the harvest, what, what would the farmers used in James's uh, imagery be doing? The farmer's patience here, described in the text, does not involve waiting around. And focusing on that, how would the farmers have embraced the struggle in the wilderness? While waiting for a harvest, I have been reliably informed that the experienced farmer would have been constantly aware of the overall conditions. Maybe also keeping an eye on the crops, the fields, and so many other things. The farmer here would know that the seasons change. Grains are expected. They're not blind. They would sow and prepare their fields in preparation for those rains. To have your seeds washed away or to be unfertilized or to let your ready crops die to neglect would make for a poor farmer. So like the farmer here, what is James calling? Well, he calls for those going through this wilderness to be steadfast, in part to be patient, but with an watchful eye on the seasons we find ourselves in. We shouldn't be discouraged. Well, we might be when those grumble against one another. But if we keep a life focused on that harvest, 
like here where the farmer is preparing the fields, we could be spreading that gospel, equipping ourselves and serving our communities for that season of plenty. I'm sure if you've been listening to the announcements, you've heard plenty of good examples. But that coming of the season of plenty, what a coming is it? The word here in the text used is parousia, which was used in James's time to describe a great entrance, usually that of a ruler or royalty. You know where this one is going. To the great coming that we will find one day. But then James expands on that patience, moving from verse 10, when he brings up the prophets, and Job in particular. James casts a light to his example where he clung to his faith despite everything else that his life could traditionally be built upon, being torn away. This example is used throughout God's word and even in popular culture to exemplify various qualities of patience. But in this wilderness, Job's faithful perseverance is singled out as he waited expectantly for his God. And we know that God was faithful to Job, even in that bleakest of situations, to deliver him when the moment most called for it. However, James's encouragement to work steadfast in a spirit of watchful, expectant patience can seem strange. Watchful patience can be lost in a world which embraces quickness, sharpness. To wait seems not that easy when when we wait, we could be seen as slow or dull, and likely you're going to be mocked for that. But instead of following the example of Job's friends, who didn't know, who spoke words that were rash and crushed his spirit, let us in a spirit of watchful patience be slow and wake, wait on the Lord for his direction. The next trial James moves into addresses a different but familiar aspect of the wilderness, I will reread actually verse 12 from the NLT, which is clearer for this particular issue. But most of all, my brothers and sisters, never take an oath by heaven or earth or anything else. Just say a simple yes or no, so that you will not sin and be condemned. This huge emphasis, you might be wondering, above all, seems a bit strange. But I'm going to read a little bit more from Matthew 5 to add a little bit more context to this passage. And if you've been listening in on James, this James series, or you're familiar with James overall, you've probably seen the basis of James's teachings are all in the Gospels. And it's no different here. As the passage we'll look at where James goes over some simple guidance, well, sorry, where Jesus goes over some simple guidance to overcome this temptation... Matthew 5, verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows that you made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. In Jesus' in and James's time, oaths or promises, as they're well known, were treated very differently. And the fact that James was bringing this up 
was an indicator of a much more serious problem. The concern that, Jesus, that James addresses is a life lived in wilderness can often erode our grasp of the truth. In that time, there was a culture that would swear oaths on various objects to establish, you could say, various degrees of truth. This is not a foreign concept. You've probably seen in a movie or a TV series someone trying to establish a great emphasis of truth by saying, I swear on something. But let's say, let's put you guys in the driving seat. If someone told you a fun fact, let's say, the can opener was invented 50 years after canned food. You might say, that's rather strange. You might even doubt it. You might whip out your smartphone or use an encyclopedia and maybe verify this. But you see this easily accessible information would not have been something of their time. Odes were prim a primary way of establishing truth. They carried the weight because they had to carry the weight. And James singles out here the scattered Israelites who were using these oaths, who had fallen into sinful conduct and would swear on the temple. And these people would and should have known that this was wrong because Jesus' teachings should have preempted these. The same ones that we read together were well known. And even beyond this, they should not have deemed it okay to break an oath like that, but they deemed it not okay to break other oaths based on sacred objects within the temple, as gold was considered holy, swearing on gold and breaking that oath would have been considered inconceivable. But why did these people establish these varying degrees of truth, and who were they? Well, I've given you a little bit of context earlier, but we should not forget that this was not the generally the privileged in society. They weren't trying to get another step ahead. This was a tough message to marginalized people, a people to whom using clever language to survive should and would have seemed as justice. I mean, when you're backed into a corner, who has not used or even considered using some clever language to get out of that situation? And the situation the people in, it, the scattered people of Israel would have found themselves in would have seemed unimaginably difficult to the vast majority of us. Well, now we know who it was being addressed to, but what did it mean? Well, firstly, to see what it meant means you have to see that this wasn't just a problem of the culture of their time. It's a culture of ours. You do not have to go further than the first social media app or your favorite legal drama to see this verbal trickery in action. We kind of see the cracks in modern society where news, facts, and really truth are so often twisted and bent by those looking to profit or seem better than they are. So why was this an issue? If that's the culture that James was in, why, why, why did it require so much emphasis? Above all, that's huge. But in a sentence, it was a reminder to the people to keep their integrity while living, while living in the wilderness. When we lose that integrity in our witness, we become just another merchant slinging just another feel-good message in this world, in a world full of them, really. Teaching others is something that we do without thinking. When we talk, when we live, 
Echoing Ben's sermon last week, it is a slippery slide, and it is a privilege as much as it is a responsibility. And it must be acknowledged in how we treat our witness. By, by embracing cultures race down to the very bottom, we end up fueling this lack of integrity in the wilderness, and we become a salt that has lost its saltiness in a world that's desperate for it. So here, James calls us to look to God always and reject this culture of pretense. Then we move on to the third part of this text. Pre sorry. Prefaced by the title, Prayer of Faith. Here we're given a framework for prayer and praise in times of need. The direction in the section is very clearly towards faith as the overall foundation. But its significance in the wilderness is twofold. Again, in the whole book of James, faith is a, cle is a key, 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 English, <laughs> is a key theme. And here, James underlines the fact that in the wilderness, our faith will be tested. But just as importantly, it should be used in all aspects of practical Christianity. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. These words do not come from a heart that was untouched by trouble and strife. James, the writer here, was understood to be an early leader of the church. In Jerusalem, he would have not been unfamiliar with persecution, threats, and even suffering the most grievous of losses by having his brother and Lord being crucified. But through our troubles, James recognizes that there is a huge importance of our faith in Christ. This worthy call to keep our eyes focused on God during suffering should not lose the sight of the fact that we need to sing that song of praise as well to speak of his mighty deeds. Harris Whittles, a comedian and well-known for being a writer on the show Parks and Rec, coined the term humble brag in 2010. This term is not what James is calling the people of God to do here, but it's so often what we can fall into or what we avoid so fervently that we fail to praise God altogether. How often do we see a Christian celebrity post or even speak of massive achievements with God just as a footnote or an afterthought? Or even speaking as a, in front of many, many people on a platform where they could reach so many, but God? Just a footnote. James here has not asked us to acknowledge our, our achievements or our knowledge or anything about ourselves, but God, but God, our creator, and our with a heart outpouring with God-centered praise, that is what we must acknowledge in our lives. Alec Mottier in his book, The Message of James, says, neither suffering or, nor ease should find us without a suitable Christian response in prayer and song. By excluding God from these moments in our lives, we effectively draw a line separating us from our Savior, and the idea of which should be setting off alarm bells in your heart. After emphasizing this, James then again continues with this theme of faith to address those wilderness moments of sickness, death, and drifting in the faith. To preface this, I will say that these are complicated, difficult topics. And if anything I say here is unclear, I'd value the chance to speak to you after the service. 
To move on, in verse 14, James goes on to the importance of faithful prayer to those who are sick. Here, the person who is sick is called to be confident in the Lord and call for prayer from the elders of their church, putting a solemn responsibility on the elders. But the oil described here is the same word that is commonly used throughout scripture for healing oils. And even today, different oils are noted for their healing properties. But what's important to note here is this vision of prayer and medicine is particularly striking because it marries two thoughts which are almost alien in this world to so many. As God has given these gifts, back in those days, the healers could have been called for. But you will be glad to know that this is not a call that God wants your local elder to perform brain surgery on that member of the congregation. But rather here, it's a call to approach medicine and treatment the same way, with a faith centered on God. But this message of faith here is not just merely limited to treatment, but by far it's the greatest comfort for those in moments of ill health, something terminal. Our faith is refined in moments like these, when times do seem the darkest, when people and foundations that you may have lived built your life upon are no longer there. Those are those moments where your faith becomes like the purest gold. But let's take another look at that spiritual healing. Well, there certainly is a place in Scripture for it. However, the prayer that prefaces it does require us to be in communion in prayer and to be directed to spiritual healing by God. To refer to the model prayer laid out for us, in it we're reminded that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So here we are to draw the conclusion in prayer we, that we should present our request to God and spend time with a heart of humility to be able to, to be ready to listen and understand with the knowledge that God is hearing, but we should be ready to submit to that will that sees more, understands more, and feels more than we could ever comprehend fully. And when we approach with a heart of fail, faith, <laughs> calling for forgiveness, make no mistake that he will answer just as he answered for those faithful believers. He points us here toward Elijah, where Elijah's prayer was answered in accordance with God's will. And we hear of great wonders where God's will was accomplished over and over again in Elijah's life. He looked to God while surrounded by a culture which had lost their faith and trust. And God heard that prayer. His heart that was centered on God is an abject inspired lesson for a heart that found itself in wilderness time after time. Finally, we look at the, this last aspect of faith, which James approaches, which is the concern of the faith of our fellow believers in this wilderness. James, in these last two verses, reminds us of the wandering soul. Here, you may notice that James is cutting deliberately wide. He's showing wisdom to both the wanderer and to those God is empowering and directing to bring that wanderer back. This path is narrow that we believers walk, and the temptation to, fa to fall off it and go further into the wilderness, those temptations are many. We do not cling to this Bible as a book of easy answers, 
This is a book of truth, of inspired truth. Sometimes easier, sometimes harder to face. But one thing that is clear is that there is a path to God that so many times over and over in this Bible that is spelled out for us. While we are justified by faith, it is crucial that these verses challenge us to have an open and humble heart, no matter which side of the wanderer's conversation that we find ourselves on. We cannot be so proud to wander further off this narrow path into the wilderness without calling for help. And when that help comes, we should be ready to listen. This is not either a call to be judgmental. And we should remember that Matthew 7, the call is not to be a hypocrite when we're thinking about the parable of the, the splinter and the plank. But that parable reminds us to remove the plank out of our eye so that we can see clearly to remove the speck out of our brothers. And the call is definitely not to be comfortable with that plank in our eye as well as the speck in our brothers or sisters. Jesus' forgiveness is for all. And it is never too late for any of us hearing this message to use that time we have for fellowship to open up that conversation with an elder or with a friend to talk about that attack, that doubt, that challenge, and find our way through the wilderness with a faith that has been refined. But where shall I leave you this evening? But with a summary, something memorable, hopefully. Something that James, in his closing, emphasized the dispersed tribes. James does focus on these challenges that the people are going through, separated from God, wandering the wilderness, the challenges of suffering, attacks on their truth and integrity, and attacks on their faith. At this point, we can and should see that what we read tonight is more than a record of their trials, but a call to action, a reminder of practical Christianity which follows the entire chapter of James, that we as believers would keep on steadfast throughout this wilderness by embracing that faith, that truth. James addresses all those in the wilderness to grow in all these challenges by relying on God's freely given gifts, leaving us with a reward of wisdom, experiences, and all of these can equip us for all the challenges to come. Challenges maybe in helping out at a local event. But there are so many challenges, and that much is clear. And if any of these explorations that James has covered, either tonight or maybe in a previous sermon, please feel free to speak to me or one of the other speakers as we'd be delighted to talk to you. Thank you very much.